Good morning. Charlotte and I were away for one Sunday. It was one Sunday too many. We love our church. We love being here, so we're absent. Uh, so it's, it's been a, a tremendous last, like, 10 days or something like that. Uh, we're still above ground. The plane didn't crash. Um, and I always have people please pray that it stays in the air. So anyway, we got to go to California for a Calvary Chapel Pastors Conference. So good. So good. And they just went through the book of Acts with us. And then Paul last week uh, taught about the filling of the Holy Spirit. Interesting. I called him up. Hey, Paul, would you teach? And, he said, and I said, what's on your mind, heart? And he said, the Holy, baptism of the Holy Spirit. That was before the conference. Right before it, actually. And we're going to the conference. The first message is on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So I hope you received that and, and uh, that you are re-upped in your mind on this thing that has been given to us, this gift of the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The other thing that has been meditating over this, uh, this time that we've been away is the spiritual battle that we're in. Some, another Calvary pastor mentioned a book by Martin, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on Christian warfare. So I took that with me as my book to read. And I just want to, again, tell you how, how thankful I am missing our church, missing going through the Word of God, missing these spiritual truths that the devil is astute at sort of obliterating. Our need for the Holy Spirit. We're in a spiritual battle. And it just refocused us a lot in just being away. Uh, we, went to the, in, we went to Washington, D.C. to see my, my uh, son, our son, Titus. He's in the, in the Navy. While there, we went to the Bible Museum, which is amazing. It opened up in 2017 in Washington, D.C. The Hobby Lobby guy, I, I think his name is Peters or something, uh, built it for $500 million. And I said, wow. And it's an, it's an incredible place to go. But it, again, more valuable than $500 million is the word of God that's given to us. And the, it's all about that, but it just, again, those are the sort of things that we've been talking about, I've been thinking about. So we are very thankful for you. We're thankful for our church. We're thankful for our heritage at Calvary Chapel. So if you're new, what we do is we go through the word of God. And the spirit of God works through the word of God to change people's lives. So when we just are taking in the word of God, every time, this again, Every time that you read your Bible, every time you hear the scriptures, every time you're studying, every time you're memorizing, God is speaking. To me, that is so over-the-top incredible that he gave us his word. It's alive and powerful, sharp than any two-edged sword. It can divide between the thoughts and intents of our hearts. So just load up with the word, and God will start dealing with the things in your heart and my heart. And so, anyway, if I don't... Stop talking, we'll never get to the scriptures today. And we don't want to do that, right? Would you stand? I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 9. And this morning, a little different, and I'll explain that in a minute. But I also want to take this message in Romans chapter 9, which quotes a verse from Exodus chapter 9. I want to read both of them. So Exodus 9, 13 through 18, or 17. And then Romans 9, 14 through 18 is what I'm going to read. So if you can get to those on your devices or in your Bible, uh, I'll give you time to turn to Romans in, in a minute. Here we go. Exodus 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time, I will send all my plagues to your very heart. This is our last study. And on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. 
Now, God speaking to Pharaoh through Moses. If I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. In other words, God let him live, Pharaoh. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. As yet you exalt yourself against my people, in that you will not let them go, Pharaoh. Now, in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 14, Paul is now going to give a commentary on this same verse. What shall we say then? Romans 9, 14. Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who, here it is, shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth, quoting from Exodus. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. I want to do a script, uh, responsive reading from Psalm 30, which is all about the mercy of God, with one verse. So I'll, t- I'll take the first and odd verses, if you together would read the second and even verses, and then I'll pray. I'll extol you, O Lord, you have lifted me up, and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Just sit and see if you knew it. You need to do that again. You kind of messed it up. Let's go. Now. Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, and I was troubled. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? You have, turned my, you have turned me, my mourning, into dancing. You have put off, off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. So, Lord, we give thanks to you. We praise your name. Lord, we don't want to be silent in our testimony and our witness to a world that is dying and going to an eternal place called hell unless they hear the gospel. Well, we don't know how all that sort of works, but we know that we have been given life. You've given that to us. You've given us a commission to preach the gospel, make disciples. And Lord, when we think about the incredible power of your your power unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, faith in the gospel, we realize we've been saved. We've come to you. You've had mercy on us. You've saved us. And Lord, how much more? Would you not want to use us to declare the same to people? So please, we pray for those in our families who have not come to know you yet. We pray during this whole season of Christmas, the message going out, that indeed the Christ is born, a little babe, and your incredible plan for our salvation and the redemption of the world. Please, bless this time in the word that I prepared, Lord. Break it fresh. Feed us. We're hungry. 
We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And Jesus, you said not one jot or tittle is going to perish until all is fulfilled. We love your word. We pray you give us ears now to hear what the Spirit is saying through your word to us this morning. Bless these things I've prepared. Break them fresh in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So you can be seated. So in Exodus 9, 16, but indeed for this purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Now, in the last study two weeks ago, I, got, I went into depth in some of this, but this morning I want to, well, it seemed good to me, and I trust the Holy Spirit, to take this verse here in Exodus in the context of Exodus 7 through 14, those chapters, and then also, as quoted by Paul in Romans, to take this verse in context of Paul's Nine, Romans 9 through 11 that are challenging scriptures to say the least. What I'd like to do in that context is talk about these in, as God, in the context of God's sovereign mercy to us. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And were God not merciful, we would perish. Thankfully, he is, right? So in Romans, it says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. So as I go through this, this chapter this morning, I pray you'll be merciful to me. <laughs> this is difficult stuff. I want to I give you the best that I can as far as I understand it, but there's a lot of things that are ununderstandable just because God is God and I'm not. Amen? God is God and you're not. And so there are things about God, the infinite, eternal God, that there's no way in our finite minds we can put it together, but God hasn't asked us in many ways to be able to understand. He asks us to believe it because he revealed it in his word. Amen? That's what I'm going to attempt to do. So these are the unsearchable riches of Christ. In Romans chapter 11, this is how Paul closes these three chapters, coming out of Romans 1 through 8 on the gospel, and then Romans 9 through 11 on the nation Israel. He says this in Romans chapter 11, verse 30, to end the chapter. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. He continues, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. And everyone said, amen. So there are things that are unsearchable in this finite domain we call time from the, the, about the, the eternal God. So Romans 1, the, the key verses of the book of Romans are in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Many of you know these. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, that's everyone. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The book of Romans is many times called the fifth gospel. Paul is going to lay out this whole thing of redemption, salvation. And we've talked about the book of Exodus being a picture of the redemption we have in Christ Jesus. What does that look like? How do we walk that out? Well, the book of Exodus is giving that to us. We're on this whole area of when God plagues a nation and when that nation is our nation. Our next study is when God delivers a nation. The question is, will that be our nation? So it's, it's very applicable in all of life, particularly, I believe, now at this time in our nation's history. So Paul is now going to show how God's righteousness 
is vindicated in his dealings with the nation Israel. The reason this is so important is because Paul the Apostle has just laid out the gospel as we get into chapter 9. That we are justified, we are sanctified, we will be glorified through our faith in Jesus Christ through the gospel. That's what is ours by faith in what God has promised. So the reason this is so important is because Paul has just laid out the gospel in these things, and this would be very disturbing to a Jew, and it was a problem. So as it was for Paul at one time, so it was for Jesus' disciples at one time. It still is the same for many today. The Jews ordered their lives by the Mosaic Law. Their acceptance by God was in adhering to the commandments, the Mosaic Law, adhering to the Law of Moses and being a quote-unquote good Jew. They were the special, the Gentiles were reprobate. To a Jew, Paul was speaking, Romans 1 through 8, blasphemous things. This can't be possible. He was degrading and trampling underfoot the patriarchs, the sacrifices, the very precious and holy things the God of Israel had gifted to them through Moses and Isaac and Jacob. And so they would say, stone them, Paul. And in fact, at one point, they actually did. So here's an outline of this chapter 9 in Romans. God's sovereign mercy in his devotion to Israel, his election of Israel, and his action towards Israel. And to you, dear believer in Jesus Christ through the gospel, these are the same things for you and I. God's devotion to us, God's election of us, and God's action toward us through the gospel. I say, yeah. So with Israel, so with us, the church. Paul began his letter to the Galatians with some very strong language concerning anyone who would preach another gospel. Because there's only one gospel by which we are saved. We all come on level ground. Galatians 1. I marvel, Paul, speaking to the Galatians, that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. In other words, it's not the same gospel. It's a different gospel, which is not another. It's not one of the same kind. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed, anathema, totally separated from God. As we have said before, so now I say again, he repeats it. If anyone preaches another gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Brothers and sisters, I hope today you leave with a greater appreciation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God to your salvation. He is devoted to you. He has elected you, and he is working for you and working in you. How did all that happen? Honestly? I don't quite know the interactions, but I know what I believe. And I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I am persuaded he is able to keep me and will keep me. As Jude prayed, now may the Lord keep you. 
I hope you leave with a greater appreciation. So I'm gonna, I have a lot of scripture, as I always do, most of which will be on the screen, but some of which I'm not going to go into detail. It will be up there. So I'm thankful who's doing the slides back there today. I appreciate if you can stay up with me, okay? But I do have a scripture for you just to encourage you, and here it is regarding you trying to stay up with me. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. Okay? There it is, okay? That's for you. <laughs> Give it up for our slide person here. <laughs> so number one, God's sovereign mercy and his devotion to Israel. God's devotion to Israel is reflected in the heart of Paul the Apostle. So we get to Romans 9. I tell you the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. He's saying, I would be willing to sacrifice my life if you would come to know Christ. The great apostle's heart beat with God's love for Israel, his people. The spiritual condition of Israel continually weighed on the heart of Paul. Now, he used to be walking in the same blindness, but he met Jesus. And in meeting Jesus, he, all of a sudden his eyes are open. He realizes what Jesus, who Jesus is and why he came. And he received the gospel. And now he's looking at the Jews, the blindness of the countrymen that he loved. He said, I wish, I wish somehow I could open your eyes. Do you not have that same burden for some people in your life? We see it so clearly. The Holy Spirit is broken through in our hard hearts. It's like he said, I tell you that I'm a burdened man. Now, our culture wants to sort of say, if you don't want to ever be burdened. I'm telling you something. We are burdened. We are burdened because we know the heart of God. And we see what, when it's contrary to God's heart, when people are living in such a way, it's going to destroy them. And not only them, but our nation. And thus, we are burdened, as Paul was for his nation. We are burdened for our nation today. Now, what's going on? He said, I walk around with constant grief in my heart. Do you, do you resonate with that a little bit? For our nation. The great apostle's heart. Paul was not anti-Semitic. He wasn't hostile to Judaism. Paul was a devout, practicing, and highly esteemed Jewish rabbi. The difference is he met Jesus. And that's the difference for most of us in this room. I hope all of us in this room or watching online. And if you have not come to that uh, revelation to your heart through faith in Jesus Christ, you're missing out. Would everyone here say amen? That may come with burdens, and it will, because the love of God beats in our hearts for people. And we know what God's done for us, and we just would want others to receive the same. God, God's heart for Israel never did, never has, and never will change. Jesus, I find this interesting, Jesus wept over Jerusalem as he's on his way to the cross on Palm Sunday. But he never wept about going to the cross. Interesting. He wept over the condition. Oh, Jerusalem, if only you'd know that this I day, but now they're hidden from your eyes because why? You haven't believed. You've missed it. You missed me, the one that was promised in all your scriptures. Now, the heart of Moses God's heart in Moses was the same. He said to God, you know, I, I'm praying. In Exodus 32, he returned to Lord and said, Oh, these people have sinned a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, 
But if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And the Lord said, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him. Of course, Moses and Paul could not give their lives as a sacrifice for the world. Only one could. But in their hearts, the love of God beat for Moses and those people. Someone said, it's not easy to estimate the measure of love in a Moses and a Paul. Our limited reason does not grasp it as a child cannot comprehend the courage of warriors, unquote. It's a deep thing of the Spirit of God in our lives that stirs us to caring for people, caring for our nation. Now, Paul came to know this eternal love of God through the gospel. So before we get to Romans 9, you have Romans 5, where he wrote these precious words to the believers in Rome. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, though, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we also glory in tribulations. Really? Yes. Knowing that tribulation produces what? The perseverance does not produce character. I wish it was just that tribulation produces character. I wish it was that. But persevere. So again, as believers in the gospel, we have now set on a course of God refining our lives and character, giving us the character of Christ. So Paul says, hope doesn't disappoint, verse 5, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God gave us the Holy Spirit, and he pours out his own love toward us. He demonstrated that on the cross when he died for his enemies. He died for sinners. He died for you, and he died for me. So Paul, before he ever gets to chapter 9, he's laying out this fantastic access we have by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I say, Not easy, but it's worth it because Jesus deemed us worthy, worth it. What Paul knew burdened him to pass it on. He wants to, so before yet, leading into Romans 9, in Romans chapter 8, many of you know this, it's probably a key central passage for many of us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or peril, or nakedness, or sword. Is this going to separate us from love of God? As it's written, for your sake we are killed all day long. It's not easy. We are counted as sheep for the soul. For your sake, that is happening. It's not fun. It's not pretty. But is it going to separate us from the love of God? In all these things, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who what? Loved us. I am persuaded. <laughs> That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other, instead of Paul saying, if I missed anything, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 9, verse 1, I tell you the truth in Christ. He's just come to the pinnacle of the gospel. Nothing. God's done this. He's accomplished it. He's finished it. Yes, they're difficult, but nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Do you believe that this morning? Do you know that this morning in your heart, by faith, if necessary, that no matter what you're feeling, no matter how it's going, God's love for you remains perfect. Nothing can separate. And we have to come back to being just with him, before him, and worship him. 
His perfect love casts out fear. He loves us. Jesus alone accomplished for us what we could never accomplish. So God's devotion to Israel is manifested in many ways. It says, who are Israelites, sovereignly chosen by God, but as he says in Deuteronomy, and he relates this to Egypt. Deuteronomy 4, did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and live? I mean, this is unique. This is special. Or did God ever try to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and outstretched arm, by great terrors, according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? This is so special, but he's relating it back to Exodus. This is what God did for you. Deuteronomy 7. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure by all the peoples of the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you are more in number than any other people. For you are the least of all the peoples. But because the Lord loves you. God is emphasizing over and over again to us. He loves us perfectly. He chose us because he loves us. Not any merit, not any sort of the badges and the, you know, the, the Christian sash that has all my badges about being. A, no, no. He loves you. But because the Lord loves you and because you would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he's reflecting it back again on this tremendous event that happened. So, Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption as sons, the glory, the Shekinah glory, the covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a divine initiative rather than some agreement between equals. God initiated that covenant with them. The giving and receiving of the law from God to Moses, written with the finger of God. The service of God, the temple worship. See, God drew them out that they might be a light to the world. And this is what he gave to them, these gifts, gifts, gifts. Of whom are the fathers, the patriarchs, promises given prior to the law. And from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. And that's the pinnacle of the whole thing. That's the purpose. The ultimate purpose is God, through Israel, would bring a Messiah who would save the world. That's you and me. God's devotion to Israel has not failed. Not failed. This is important. In Romans 1 through 8, Paul just laid out the promises that are ours in Christ. What about the promises made to Israel? What about what God promised to Israel? Did God lie to them? Is he not going to? No, God cannot lie. His promises are yes and amen. What, will God do what he promised? Has God's word failed? Listen, if yes, then can we trust the word of God? Can we trust what we've just read? If God is not going to do these things for Israel? He's not done with Israel. Let God be true and every man a liar. God will be, vic- will be vindicated. God is never unrighteous. He's never unfaithful. He's never untruthful. He's never on anything except that he's unchanging in his perfect love. He's faithful. I love that song we sang this morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, to me. 
Great is thy faithfulness. Would you sing with me? Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, what mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness. Oh, personalize it to me. Wow. That's what Paul's talking about. His sovereign mercy toward us, unchanging and perfect. God's sovereign mercy is the election of Israel, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as the seed. There's a lot here, and to unpack it would be impossible, in fact, in a few studies. But Paul's saying his sovereign mercy is the election of Israel, and the same for you. God is merciful. True Israel will yet see God's promises fulfilled. God's sovereign promise will always for true Israel. God's promise will be given sovereignly, listen carefully, not biologically. Yes, there are the Jews. They still exist. But God's promises are through his sovereign mercy to all who will believe his promises. God's promises, his election is according to promise, not according to the flesh. Being a physical descendant of Abraham did not entitle someone to God's promises. It's through faith in what he's given to us. Ishmael was a son born of the flesh, Isaac the son of promises. The promises are to the spiritual descendants of Abraham. What God promised him. And we can rejoice because they were and we are. True Israel. For this is the word of promise, verse 9. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. His, his promises are, are according to his power, what he can, his life-giving power. So it says in Romans 4, And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he's about 100 years old. God said, you're going to have a son. He's saying, well, I'm not even going to think about the impossibility of that. Or Sarah. He didn't look at the human limitations, the human impossibility. He looked at God who's promised. Have nothing to do with human possibility, human ability. And not only this, verse 10, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, this is a difficult verse. God's promises are according to his purposes in election. God chose Jacob before he was ever born. Now, they were womb mates. Jacob and Esau. You can't get much closer than that. It's according to God's sovereign election for his purpose. The older Esau, Esau shall serve the younger Jacob. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated or loved less. God loves. He hates sin. A lot of things he hates. 
But here it's he loved less or however you want to look at that. So I want to offer a couple thoughts for you to chew on this morning. When God said to Isaac and Rebekah, the younger shall serve the older, in reality, historically, that never happened between Jacob and Esau, individually. Jacob never did exercise power over Esau, nor was Esau ever subject to Jacob. Quite the contrary. Jacob was subject to Esau, afraid of him and running from him. And not only that, Esau is reconciled with his brother Jacob. And not only that, note this in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. So in context, the passage quoted are speaking of two nations, not two individuals. I'll give this to you. You can go research it. In Genesis 25, Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, if all is well, why am I like this? How many of you pregnant women would say that? If all is well, what's going on here? That's why God has women bear the children, because if it was men, we'd never do it. Verse 23, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Now, what if you find out I'm pregnant with a nation? That's what it's pointing to. Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your own body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. That's the initial birth promise. Now, Malachi, quoting that, it was not the person of Esau, but the nation of Edom. In Malachi 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau's Esau, Jacob's brother, says the Lord. Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom, there's the nation, has said, we have been impoverished, but we return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. And they shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. The nation. So in both these passages are speaking prophetically, Paul using them, quoting them, of the posterity of Jacob and Esau. It's, an, it's in a national sense, not individual. Not personal. So this is what I've concluded. Again, you can take this up with me if you'd like. I'm happy to talk more about it. I've concluded this is a very important distinction if we're going to sort of try to put in place what's going on here. Paul is speaking nationally, the nation Israel. He's referring to nations, not individuals. This passage has often been a proof text of the Calvinist, but it leaves plenty of room for debate. Now, Paul's going to speak of a certain individual named Pharaoh, and we've already looked at him quite a bit, but to the heart of an individual, and God's dealing with the individual in Pharaoh. Now, if all this is new to you, I'm not sure where you're at in your walk with the Lord or your study of the Scriptures or even these, these controversial topics. The debate here in Romans is often simplified as this. The Calvinist says, once saved, always saved. This is a sim simplifying of it quite, quite dramatically, actually, but basically. The Arminian says, it is possible for a person who is once saved to be lost. Or you can lose your salvation. Now, in some ways, we wrestle with these in our minds and hearts. 
particularly when we're wrestling with temptation. And we find this besetting sin. Am I saved or not saved? Now, I want to... Is that God calling? Okay, so if it's him, we're... we're... Uh, we have uh, a limited amount of these. I tried to get more, but they're just they're in printing. But this is called Calvinism, Arminianism, and the Word of God. It's by Pastor Chuck Smith, who is my pastor. He's passed away now, but I was with him for five years down in Southern California. I think this is one of the best balanced uh, sort of little pamphlet on this whole um, contra- or debates. He wrote, Calvary chapels try to avoid conclusions, terminology, and arguments which are not clearly presented in the Bible. In no area of controversy is this approach more essential than in the long-simmering debates between Calvinists and Arminians. Page 10, he says, it's not our purpose to take sides on these issues or to divide the body of Christ over human interpretations of these biblical truths concerning salvation. We simply desire to state how we in the Calvary Chapel fellowships understand the Bible's teaching regarding these matters, unquote. That's what I'm trying to do this morning. So uh, this book I think it's fantastic. I think it's a must-read. So we only have four of them, so they're, they're going to be $40 a piece. I'm, I'm kidding. We will give these to you. Now, you can also go online. If you research that, take a picture of it now. You, there's a PDF that you can read it. So uh, I think we have four there. So don't rush. To, don't rush. We'll wait till after. I hope you'll read it. I want to give you a little longer, lengthy quote. How are we doing here? From Adam Clark, whose commentaries I read, he says this, were such a personal reprobation intended, or what would be said, predestined to damnation, God created you to damn you, were such a personal reprobation intended, is it not shocking to suppose that the God of endless mercy, in whose sight pious parents had found favor, should inform them even before the child was born They had absolutely consigned him by an irrevocable decree to eternal damnation. A message of such horrid import coming immediately from the mouth of God to a tender, weak, and delicate woman whose hour of travail with two children was just at hand could not have failed to produce abortion and destroy her life. But the parents perfectly understood their God and saw no decree of reprobation in this message. Two manners of nations are in your womb and the elder shall serve the younger. There is no reason worthy of the most wise and gracious God, why he should make known to the world such a thing concerning Esau, who was still unborn, that he had reprobated him for all eternity. Such a revelation could be of no spiritual advantage or edification to mankind, but rather a malignant influence as directly occasioning people to judge their, their maker harshly, to conceive of him as no faithful creator at all, and having no care, no love, no bowels of compassion toward the workmanship of his own hands. The scope of the apostles' reasoning is to show that God is the sovereign of his own ways, has a right to dispense his blessings as he chooses, and to give salvation to mankind, not in the ways of their devising, but in that way that is most suitable to his infinite wisdom and goodness. Therefore, he chose the Jewish people from all others. Thus they were elect, and all the nations of mankind reprobate. 
Therefore, when the fullness of time came, he revealed himself also to the Gentiles. Thus the elect became reprobate and the reprobate elect. Therefore, he published to all mankind that pardon from sin should be obtained only by faith in his son Jesus and not by any obedience to the law. And the Jews, the descendants of Jacob, who rejected this way of salvation, became precisely like the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, unquote. So Paul now anticipates. Were you with me on that? If you want my notes, I'm happy to send them to you, these quotes. And the reason that I feel this is important to go through this morning is because foundational to what we believe is the mercy of God. And we who have had mercy then are to be merciful. And to look at these things, and we may not understand them, We may not know exactly how they fit together, but God is not asking us to. He knows we can't. But he's revealed to us in his word certain things that seem to be contradictory, seem to not make sense. So we ought to get one side or the other. And I'm saying the mercy of God, and I'll close with a quote from Pastor Chuck in a couple minutes. But Paul now anticipates the reaction, the question raised. Paul would take up this topic of God's election and say, hold on, that's not fair. How can God choose one and not another? How does this thing work? And from our limited perspective, it seems unfair. So it's an understood question. God's mercy and his action towards Israel. As you look at Romans 9 through 11, it amplifies God's mercy. I have mercy on whoever I'll have mercy. God who shows mercy. He has mercy on whom he wills. The vessels of mercy, in chapter 11, have, no, have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown, they also may obtain mercy. It's the mercy of God toward us. So the cry, you're not fair. It's not just. This is unrighteous. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? He immediately says, certainly not. How can he just choose and reject another? And it would seem to us that God's arbitrary in his choices. Arbitrary means done for no legitimate reason whatsoever. Determined by whim or impulse. That's arbitrary. God is arbitrary in the sense that he is, that there is not reason in us. You should be glad that I'm not God. I'd be very arbitrary depending on how I'm feeling. It does not mean that there's not reason with God. God never does anything arbitrarily. If we find fault with God, it only reveals our own fallen and faulty faculties. So, In this is the testing of our faith. God is God, and I am not. Has he revealed these things in the scriptures? You bet he has, clearly. Do I understand them? No. Am I going to be able to understand them? No. I look at our faith as as two rails of a train. You have God's sovereign purposes, and you have man's free will. And as I'm on that train and my faith rides on those rails, I may look down the track and think at some point they're going to come together. But if they ever start to come together, you are derailed and I'm derailed. 
in this finite time dimension that we are living in and we are, those two rails must stay parallel. Because if they ever don't, we're going to be derailed on one side or the other in our faith in God. Deuteronomy says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, God's revealed certain things to us. Why? So we be obedient in our living for him. There are things we don't know. There are so many things revealed by God in his word that I cannot understand, and yet I believe them because they're revealed. And the revelation of God takes authority over any musings of man's mind, philosophies, vain deceits that men would put in their reasonings, and yet God says, no, the, the, the natural man cannot understand these things. Paul warned them, be careful of philosophy. Philosophy is just man's musings on how the whole thing works. Paul says, stay away from it. Go back to the word of God. Read what he said and believe it. And trust him for it. God is merciful, gracious, abounding in, in love. He is just. And like Moses, we, we believe all these things by making haste, bowing down our heads and worshiping God. That's in Exodus chapter 34. God in his sovereign mercy is under no obligation to save. The Almighty owes us nothing. We have no claim on grace. If we lay claim to anything, it's justice. And his justice must, must put us to death. How did God deal with that? His perfect son received the punishment, the just punishment for your sin and my sin. And release the mercy of God if I'll put my faith in God's provision for my sin. Isn't that fantastic? That's what God did. That's what Paul's pointing to. This, inner, this mysterious interaction between the sovereignty of God and man's free will. Rails. I believe both. And I trust God in those things. My faith remains intact. He's going to work with men as with the clay with the potter. That's what he says. I have mercy on him, so then is not with him who will, nor of him. That's verse uh, 16. Here it is. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he hardens. You will say to them, why did he still find fault? Who has resisted his will? Why did he still find fault? I'll tell you, it's very simple, because fault was there. It was there. We went, we went through these things, so I'll... I'll the whole of, of Pharaoh hardening his heart was made, he made it harder and harder, and then God backed him up. God firmed it up through 10 times of Moses hard, of Pharaoh hardening his heart, and then God firmed it up, firmed it up. He allowed Pharaoh's heart to take its natural course. And this is what's going on, though we may not understand it and see it blatantly. That's what's going on between a person and God who's hardening their hearts. And God's working with them as the potter with the clay. And you know, you think of these notorious evil people, Hitler, Stalin, or the likes. What's happened there? Well, in their, in their power, restraint was removed. So they could go even deeper and deeper into horrendous, horrible, evil things. And thus I think of our nation. 
when the restraints begin to be removed, lawlessness takes over. We're seeing it all over the place. Did you hear about the last night in the Nordstrom store in the San Francisco area? 50 to 80 people came with crowbars and all of a sudden went into this Nordstrom store and just absolutely robbed it. It's lawlessness. So the process of resisting is what he's talking about. There's this hardening, 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 hardening. And then there's the end result that comes from that. Indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing form say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? So there's this illustration of the potter and the clay. I would point out a couple things. The illustration here, first, the clay, the lump, exists. So I don't believe it's talking about creation. It's talking about this lump of clay that already existed. Some would attack the integrity of God by saying that God can make what he wants with the clay, that God has the power to create innocent beings, then force them to do evil, and then punish them for it. Now, the important word here is a power. It's authority. Does he not have authority? He has the power to do this, but his authority is his character. You with me? His authority is his character. He cannot act contrary to his character in his power. In exercising his authority. I reject that idea completely. That God would create someone. To them damn them. That's not the heart of God. Nor is it the character of God. And the nature of God. Now God is just. At the same time he's merciful. And he says that in a couple of scriptures. So. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? No, there's a second. The lump he's talking about is not neutral. He endured with much long suffering. What if God, wanting or willing, God's not willing that any should perish? It's not part of what he desires for men. But he must judge sin and will judge the sinner. The fact that he doesn't is a testimony to his mercy, not man's innocence. Can I say that again? The fact that he doesn't is not pointing to man's innocence. It's pointing to God's mercy. Why would he even put up with Pharaoh for five more seconds? But then I must reflect, why did God put up with me through my wandering years, my rebellious heart? One answer, he's merciful. At some point, though, there comes a time when it all adds up, as we looked at in our last study for Pharaoh, this cumulative process that came to an end and God judged. Now, we're going to run into problems if we think of man as being neutral. The world would like you to think that that's true. It is not. Anybody who has children will say amen to that. There is a sinful nature. Do I understand that? Not completely. But I know what the Bible reveals. I obtained a sinful nature because Adam is my father. And through one man, sin came into the world, and death through sin thus all died, Romans. So somewhere, somehow along the, in this whole thing, I was born into this world as a sinner. Sinner. 
with a sinful nature. And so were every one of you in this room. Every one of you watching. We are sinners. Saved by grace. It's sobering to realize that, isn't it? What's the problem there? How come your son, our son, in the nursery when he was very young, how come he's hitting the little children? He said to Charlotte, do you know what's going on with that? What's happening with him? And she simply said, yeah, he's a little sinner. <laughs> and he needs a warm bottom. It's just there. And so, these vessels of wrath, there's two different words used here. In verse 22, it's fitted, adjusted, and ready and ripe for judgment. That he prepared for destruction. So through a process, we're getting now the end of it, and that is a refusal to turn in, to, to, to God in repentance led to this process becoming the cumulative end of judgment. Prepared. The other one, which the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, that's a single act that God did. So there are diff two different words there. So God in his sovereign mercy will preserve and save some. And this is where the chapter closes. And again, I just want to leave you and me with this whole tremendous word called mercy. He has been merciful. The vessels of mercy which he had prepared before him for glory, even us who he called, not not of Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Even us. And he says to, in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who are not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. That's what's happened. We have the right to be called children of God because we believe in God's promises. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. Not all. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. Now, we're, we're saying, well, would you get on with it? <laughs> short work on the earth. Now, there's this thing called salvation. God's purpose is going to, when we look back, we're going to realize, wow. One day it will be over. Because the Lord might, and as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like, made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God to to everyone who believes, the Jew first, also the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the just shall live by faith. Just believe God. Receive the revelations God's given to us. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. That's not going to work. Jesus came and solidified God's purposes and why it was necessary. And he died on that cross. His blood was shed. And on him, God laid all the iniquity of us all. It was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And as, as that happened, Jesus bearing the sin of the world on that cross. Do I understand that? No, that's the, what we would call the foolishness of God is wiser than men. 
that somehow, some way, in this transaction that God did, my sin was laid on him, your sin was laid on him, and we look to the cross, and we realize there, that's the only thing I need to understand as a starting point and ground level and ground foundation for everything else, that Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin and leather crimson, he washed it white as snow. And I can stand before him in all of my failures and all of my faults and all of my sin. I can stand before him and look to the cross and God says, I forgive you, I cleanse you, I wash you. And what did I do to deserve that? Nothing except come to him and believe the promise. And thus as we close this whole thing, he says, as we behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. One day, you are going to stand before God. And Jesus is going to stand next to you if you've received him as your Savior. He's going to say, Father, he's mine. Father, she's mine. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Are you looking forward to that? Let me close with a quote from this book, Armenian book. It's not easy to maintain the unity of the Spirit among us on these matters. It seems that the sovereignty of God and human responsibility are like two parallel lines that do not seem to interact within our finite minds. God's ways are past finding out. And the Bible warns us to lean not on our own understanding, to say what God says in the Bible, no more and no less, it not al- is, is not always easy, comfortable, or completely understandable. But Scripture tells us that the wisdom from above will be loving and kind toward all, seeking the unity of the believers, not trying to find ways to divide and separate from one another. May God help us to love each other, to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Jesus Christ has forgiven us. In difficult doctrinal matters, may we have gracious attitudes and humble hearts, desiring most of all to please him who has called us to serve him in the body of Christ. Discussion, yes. Disagreements, yes. Division, no, unquote. Would you stand? Let's close our hearts looking to the Lord this morning in worship. And I hope I've helped you a little bit this morning. There's a lot of stuff there, a lot of things to think about. If you've never thought about them before, I hope this spurs you. If you've thought a lot about it, I hope it just reignites in you this uns- the unsearchable riches of Christ found in his word to grant to us a strength Be strong, Lord, in the power of his might. This is all God's doing for you and for me. Let's worship him, and I'll I'll close us in prayer.